I want you to take a Bible this morning. Let's open it together. Uh, in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 10. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we want you to borrow our copy. You'll find it on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 221, page 221 to begin. And uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10, we're continuing in our study of the life of David, the great man of God. I'm sure you've heard about the new governor of Minnesota. His name is Jesse Ventura. Jesse, the body Ventura, used to be a professional wrestler with WWF. And uh, last week he was on the Late Show with David Letterman, and they were sitting there talking and trying to be funny. Governor Ventura made an off-the-cuff uh, wisecrack about the streets in Minnesota's capital city, St. Paul. What he said was, and I quote, "Whoever designed the St. Paul streets must have been drunk." I think it was those Irish guys. You know what they like to do. And then he pretended to throw down a drink. Well, the people back in Minnesota went crazy. They got very upset. And in retaliation, the city council of St. Paul last week passed a resolution, and here's what it said, and I quote, The streets of St. Paul were designed to keep wrestlers and other undesirables out of the city. But this plan is obviously not working. <laughs> and uh, Ventura had to go back, he had to apologize. People are still smoldering about it. But you know, when I heard all of this, I read about it in the paper, I thought, welcome to the world of knee-jerk. What he did on Letterman was a classic example of knee-jerk. And I looked knee-jerk up in the dictionary, and here's what it says. It says, a quick, non-thoughtful action or comment that, uh, that, which leaves a trail of hurt feelings and wounded relationships. It's shooting from the hip, saying and doing stupid, impulsive things that hurt people and wound relationships. Now, friends, my experience is that Governor Ventura is not, uh, does not have a corner on the market of knee-jerk. I think most of us are pretty good at this, too. At least I am. It's kind of like my spiritual gift. I was born naturally able to do this. And, and this is what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about knee-jerk decisions, knee-jerk comments, knee-jerk actions, why they're dangerous, and how we as Christians can do a better job of avoiding them. We're going to use an incident from the life of David where some Somebody pulls a knee-jerk and we see the damage that comes from it. So come along with me. Let's talk about that today. A little bit of background. Remember, David is now the king of all Israel. He's the most powerful man in the ancient Near East. And that's where this happens, this event. Chapter 10, verse 1. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died. Now, the Ammonites were a group of people that lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River in the modern-day country of Jordan. And the king died... And his son, Hanun, succeeded him. And David thought, I will show kindness to this new young king, Hanun, the son of Nachash, just as his father, Nachash, showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. Now, what did this man, Nachash, do for David that David was so much uh, in debt to him? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It's very possible that during those days when David was fleeing from Saul and hiding out in the wilderness, that this man, Nachash, fed him or clothed him or gave provisions to him and his men. We just don't know. But whatever he did, he did something that David really appreciated. So he sends an official delegation to see the man's son and express condolences. Now, the middle of verse 2, And when David's men came into the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, their new king, do, do you really think David is doing this to honor your father? 
and sending men to express sympathy? Don't you? What's wrong with you? Don't have, why do you need to wise up? David sent these men here to explore the city and to spy it out so that he can figure out how to capture it and overthrow it. They say to him, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand? This is not what it looks like. This is a CIA operation going on here, king. And you need to wise up and you need to realize that. Now, it was bad enough that David's nobles had a knee-jerk response without taking any time to, 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 to talk to these men, without getting any of the facts, without doing any investigation. They leap to this conclusion. They get all emotional about it. And with emotion and passion, they go in to see the king and they say, this is what's going on. That's bad enough. But what's a lot worse is that the king let their emotion carry him along and now he makes a knee-jerk decision. Verse 4. And it, and it says, so Kanun seized David's men and shaved off half of each man's beard and cut off their garments in the middle of the buttocks and sent them away. Now, you know, Michelangelo's famous statue of David, I'm sure many of you have seen pictures of it, probably all of us. It's a wonderful piece of artwork. David in there is young and he's muscular and he's virile and he's ripped. I mean, it's quite a statue. It's artistically flawless. The only problem with that statue is that it is historically inaccurate. And the reason is that if you look at the picture, you look at the statue rather, David is clean shaven in the statue. Well, we know from archaeology that everybody in David's day, every man in Israel, had a full beard. It was a sign of their manhood, their virility, their authority, their maturity. And the, the, worst, the worst thing you could do to a man, the worst insult and humiliation you could give a man in Israel is to cut off his beard, which is what the, the, this king did to these uh, messengers and sent them away packing. Now, how did David respond to all of this? Well, verse 5 says, when David was told about it, he sent messengers to meet these men, for they were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown back, and then you can return. David sent to the men and said, hey, look, you guys take a little bit of administrative leave. You stay right down there in Jericho. You let your beard grow back, and then you can return to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, he was really ticked off at what these Ammonites did. And he began to get some troops together to invade and pay them back. And the Ammonites, verse 6, when they realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Arameans, as well as the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. They went out and hired mercenaries because they understood that David was going to send in the Marines, and they wanted to be ready for it. Well, let me summarize the rest of the chapter for you. David does send in the Marines. He sends his army to pay them back. They have a battle, and David's guys schwack them. Then uh, the Ammonites, they, get, they go hire a bunch of more mercenaries, and they have another battle, and David's guys schwack them a second time. And skip down, if you would, to verse 18 and read that with me. It says in verse 18 that they, the Ammonites, fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of the army, and he, the commander, died there on the battlefield. Think about this destruction now. Forty-some thousand men killed. Think of how many children that left fatherless. Think of how many husbands that left, I mean wives rather, that left husbandless. Think of how many mothers that that left uh, childless. Forty-some thousand people killed. And all of that destruction and all of that loss of life could have been averted if only that king hadn't done a stupid, knee-jerk thing. 
Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. And you know what the really important question is. You ready? One, two, three. Okay, not bad. Not bad. So what, Lon? I mean, it was a dumb thing for the king to do. We realize it was a dumb thing for the king to do, but it doesn't have one bit of difference uh, for my life today, so, so what? Well, I believe that there's a great lesson in here for us about knee-jerk decisions. You know, uh, I, I, I've been here at McLean Bible Church now almost 19 years. That's a long time. But hey, I love you and you love me, so it's all good, right? It's all good. So we're having fun together. But anyway, as I look back over those 19 years, I have to tell you, I've made some really bad decisions. Really stupid decisions that hurt a lot of people, that left a lot of wounded feelings, and left blood all over the pews. you understand what I'm saying? And if you've been here a number of years, you don't, you don't need any prompting to help you remember some of those stupid decisions that I've made over those years. Now, as I look back over those decisions and try to find anything at all that was in common with all of them, one of the things that I find in common with all of them is they were all knee-jerk decisions. I got roared up about something. I got fired up about something. I charged off impulsively to do it, made a terrible decision, and people got hurt. I'll bet you if you look at the worst decisions you've ever made in your life, you will probably find that they were impulsive, knee-jerk decisions. Now, friends, here's the point. The point is that whenever we make knee-jerk decisions, we always cause negative fallout. We always hurt people. That's part of the definition of a knee-jerk decision. We wound people. We hurt people we care about. You say, well, Lon, then as leader of McLean Bible Church, why don't you stop making knee-jerk decisions so all of us, life will be better for all of us? Well, my answer to that is, why don't you stop making them in your life and things will be better for the people around you? No, that's not really my answer. My real answer is... No, my real answer is, you know, over the last few years, uh, by the grace of God, I have been able to make fewer knee-jerk decisions, and I have been able to make fewer bad decisions, and I'll tell you why. It's not because I got smarter. It's because over the years, God has taught me some great principles, some principles which, when we follow them, put a damper on our tendency to make quick, impulsive, knee-jerk, damaging, awful decisions. Now, I want to share those principles with you. And again, I'm telling you, making good decisions, you don't have to necessarily be smart, but there are some principles we need to follow to keep from making the kind of stupid decisions that hurt people. And I've got six I want to give you. You say, six? You'll never get six in. Well, so far I have every one, every time, so I will. Trust me, principle number one. I hope you'll write these down, and then I hope you'll put them on the refrigerator, or I hope you'll put them on your desk at work, or I hope you'll put them on the dashboard of your car, because I don't know about you, but some of the worst knee-jerk decisions I make is on the beltway, so I need them right on the dashboard of my car. So just put them wherever you need them, and they'll work for you, I promise. All right, here we go. Number one, remember the pancake rule is number one. Say, what is that? Well, a few years ago, I had a man come up to me and say, Lon, don't ever forget, there are always two sides to every pancake. And if you're smart, you'll check both sides out before you make a decision. And I have learned it's far too easy to make knee-jerk decisions when we forget this rule, when we fail to check out the other side of the pancake. That's what this king did. If he'd have gone and talked to David or talked to David's men and heard their side of the story and checked out the other side of the pancake, he wouldn't have made the decision that he made that cost so many people their lives. He didn't take the time to do that. You know, I, my experience has been here at McLean Bible Church, friends, that usually... 
almost without exception, the person who comes to me first with the most emotion and the most passion and the most convincing story is usually the person who has it most wrong. Have you ever noticed that? And years ago, I used to go charging off. I'd listen to them. I'd get all fired up. I'd go, that's ridiculous. How could somebody do that? And I'd go running out to fix it and make a total disaster out of everything. I've learned now to say to people in my office, you know, that's a very convincing story you tell. And if it's true exactly the way you tell it, you have every right to be upset. But there's always two sides to every story. So I have no comment to make. I have no advice to give until I hear the other side of the story. And when I've heard both sides of the story, I'll be happy to get together with you and then I'll tell you what I think. I've had to force myself to learn that when somebody tells me a story, I've got to stay neutral emotionally. I've got to stay emotionally unconnected till I hear the other side because if I don't, if I don't, I'm going to go out and react and usually react to a story that's distorted and make some really bad decisions. Friends, let me tell you something. In your life, if you want to avoid knee-jerk decisions, establish a policy that you will never act. You will never respond or even speak until you've heard the other side. That's why James chapter 1 verse 19 says, Be quick to listen and be slow to speak. Slow down and make sure you got the whole story before you say anything. Second principle is make sure you consider the consequences before you act. Before you act. Remember the old V8 commercial? You know, pop, I should have had a V8. Well, that's how I feel about a lot of decisions I make. You know, pop, why didn't I think before I did this? And the book, the, the book of Proverbs comments to this. Listen to Proverbs 22, verse 3. It says, a wise person sees danger coming. Why do they see danger coming? They see danger coming because they slow down long enough to consider the long-range impact of this thing they're about ready to do, to think through what may happen if they make this choice. They see danger up ahead, the verse goes on to say, and they take refuge. They get off the road. They don't let the tank run over them. But a fool just keeps right on going and suffers the consequences. The tank comes down the road and runs right over them. And friends, one of the greatest defenses against knee-jerk, impulsive decisions that are self-destructive is to slow down long enough to make a list and think, well, now, what are the implications? What is going to happen if I make this choice and really lay it out on a piece of paper or at least lay it out mentally? Man, it's amazing how a fallout study like this helps you avoid making some stupid decisions because once you see it listed out, you say, wow, wow, there's just too much risk here. I shouldn't do that. There's just too much risk. My wife and I have an agreement that when we go out shopping, we don't spend more than $100 until we go home and sleep on it. Now, that's been a great rule that we've had for 25 years of marriage. And let me tell you, the rule is not because my wife needs it. You understand what I'm saying to you? The rule, rule is because I need it. I get out and I'm like the guy who buys the, 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 the car that we saw. I get out there and I see it, and, you know, and I want it. And I'm like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. You know, my eyeballs start going and I'm like, yeah, I gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have it. And you know, it's amazing when I'm forced to go home and sleep on it and really sit down and think, why do I need need to have it, and I don't do this myself, my wife helps me think that through. Why do you need to have this? Uh, when it's all said and done, I wake up the next morning and go, you know what, I don't need that, I don't even want that. Why did I even want that? I'm glad I didn't spend the money for that. But so often we act impulsively and quickly and we do it and then we go, oh, why did I do that? Friends, 
slow down long enough to think through the consequences before you do it, you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed at how few, much fewer knee-jerk decisions you make. Number three, principle number three, is bathe your, intend, your impending decision in prayer. Bathe it in prayer. Now, I didn't say sponge bath it, right? There's a huge difference. I said bathe it in prayer, immerse it, soak it, drench it, saturate it. Now, this means we have to slow down, and that in and of itself is good, but it also means that we're taking the time to genuinely seek God's guidance and God's input and God's wisdom and God's will. Proverbs chapter 3, listen, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own wisdom. Seek His will in all you do. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways is by bathing every decision in prayer, by getting on your knees and saying, God, I want to really pray about this until I hear from you. And listen to God's promise. Do that, He says, and He will direct your paths. Now, I know one thing about me is when I make knee-jerk decisions, the next thing I know, I'm in the middle of a minefield. You understand what I'm saying? And everywhere it seems like I'm going to step, I'm going to blow half my leg off. And I always turn around and say, how did you get in this minefield? Well, I did it by making a knee-jerk decision. One wonderful thing about God directing our paths is that God never directs your path into a minefield. Never does it. And so if you want to avoid minefields, and that's a smart thing to avoid, the way to do it is have God direct your path. And how do you get God to direct your path? Very simple. You bathe your decisions in prayer. Now, I hate cheese. I don't like cheese. Now, I, I can't stand cheese. But one thing I'm told about good cheese is that it's aged. That that's what makes good cheese. I'm not a wine drinker, but I'm told that good wine is wine that's aged. I'm told that good cigars are aged. And what I'm here to tell you is that good decisions are aged too. They are aged in prayer. And if you want to make good decisions, you age them in prayer and you'll make better decisions. Principle number four is never, ever, ever do anything that violates the clear teaching of the Word of God, the clear standards of the Word of God. Listen to Psalm chapter nine, uh, Psalm 19. The Psalm 19 says this. It says, the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And then it goes on to say, by them, by God's ordinances, by God's standards, your servant is warned. It is saying that when I read the Bible and I see the standards in the Bible, they act as a warning sign to me, a neon flashing sign saying, don't go here, don't go here, don't go here. There's alligators here. You don't want to go over here. The cliff's over here. You don't want to walk off the cliff. Stay away from here. And friends, when the Bible gives us clear standards, it's for our own protection. It's to help us from making terrible decisions. And no matter how much you may want to do something, no matter how right you may feel about it at the time, no matter how passionate you may be about it, listen, God will never lead you, He will never lead anybody else to violate the clear standards of the Word of God. To do so, the only thing that ever results from that is trouble. Trouble. I had a lady in my office not too long ago, and she told me this. She said, you know, I've really been praying about this, Lon really been seeking God on this, and I am convinced it is God's will for me to be with the man that I'm with. Now, what you need to know is that the man she was with was married, not to her. 
to somebody else. He was cheating on his wife, cheating on his children, lying to his family, deceiving his family, deceiving his boss. And she says to me, and I believe God is leading me. It's God's will for me to be with this man. So what counsel do you give her? I said, well, you know, let me tell you something. I don't know for sure who's leading you to be with this man, but I can tell you for sure who isn't. Absolutely who isn't. And that's God. There is no way in the world God is leading you to be with this man. Because the Ten Commandments still read, thou shalt not commit adultery. They haven't changed. And there's no way in the world God would lead you to violate the clear standard of the Word of God. Now, you may be leading you, or somebody else may be leading you, but it's not God. You need to give that up. God's not doing that. Because this is a disastrous decision. This is a self-destructive decision. This is a stupid decision. God doesn't lead people to make stupid decisions. And my dear friends, any decision we make that violates the standards of the Word of God is by definition a knee-jerk decision. Nothing but trouble will result from it. Don't ever do it. God will never lead you there. Principle number five is make your decisions, if you want to avoid knee-jerk decisions, make your decisions in a team environment. Proverbs 11, verse 14 says, In a multitude of counselors there is wisdom. And if you really want to make good decisions, if you want to avoid knee-jerk decisions, enlist a team of godly friends around you whose advice you believe you can trust, you know you can trust, run your impending decisions by them, your actions by them, and give them the right to tell you the truth as they see it. Now, if you have godly parents, they make a wonderful part of this team. If you don't have godly parents or, or your parents, you don't trust them or if they're not here anymore, then get some peers that walk with God that you believe in. But get some people around you who can be a team that you can run things by and make decisions. Don't make decisions as a lone ranger. The worst decisions ever made in my life were made as a lone ranger. When I looked at it, knew what I believed, did it, and it was a disaster. Get some people around you. I use my staff this way. I go into staff meeting all the time. And I say, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you all think? And my staff says to me, Lon, that is the dumbest idea we have ever heard of. Don't do that. You know, you're going to mess yourself up, mess us up, mess the whole church family up. Don't do that. He said, you let your staff talk to you like that? Friends, not only do I let my staff talk to me like that, I beg my staff to talk to me like that. Because I know my capacity to make stupid decisions. I mean, I was born, I'm good at this, I'm telling you. I'm good at this. And so I say, please, guys, help me not to make dumb decisions. Now, men, wives are wonderful at this. I mean, wives are born with this ability to do this for us. And I'll go to my wife all the time and Brenda will say to me, you know that idea you had the other day? And I'll go, yeah. She'll go, it's stupid. <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. I go, Really? Yeah, Lon, don't do it. And you know the really depressing part? She's always right. That's what's depressing, is that every time I've never listened to her, I pay for it. And when I do listen to her, I always have to come back and go, You were right. What was that? You were right. A little louder, Lon. Okay, you were right. Does that make you feel better? And the truth is, yes, it makes her feel wonderful. <laughs> Friends, 
this is what real humility is all about. Real humility means that we're more concerned about making a good decision than we are about getting what we want. And that we purposely put people in our lives who tell us the truth. And we want them to tell us the truth. And we assure them they can tell us the truth. And we will not in any way retaliate. Tell me the truth, please. And we're willing to listen. Now, that's a humble person. And if you want to make fewer knee-jerk decisions, then my suggestion is cultivate the humility that allows people around you to help you. Sixth and finally. You didn't believe I was going to make this, did you? I told you what. Sixth and finally, after all the above, if you've done all the above, if you've looked at both sides of the pancake, you got both sides of the story, if you've considered the consequences before you did it, if you've bathed your decision in prayer, if you are not violating any standards of the Word of God, if you've asked for input and advice from your team, if you've done all of that, and still you're in doubt, here's my last principle, if in doubt, don't. How about that? That's a good principle. If in doubt, just wait. If in doubt, take more time. If in doubt, let it sit for a while. You say, but Lon, I got people on me going, you got to make a decision now. I got to know now. You got to tell me something now. You got to decide now. You know what? Don't let people like that pressure you into making a decision. Let it go. Just say, okay, if you can't wait, then this is not from God because I don't know yet. So you just take it and go and I'll catch up later. Just go because I'm not I'm not making decisions like that. There are very few decisions that have to be made yesterday. Very few. And I tell my boys all the time. I say, guys, you know what? I can't think of very many things that I didn't say that I regret today. But I sure can think of a bunch of stuff I did say I regret today. I, a bunch of stuff I wish, since I had a little bit of doubt, I wish I'd kept inside my mouth. And friends, if you've got something that you're not sure you should do and you don't do it, you can usually come back and do it later. But if you do do it and then you wish you didn't do it, you can't come back and don't do it. Did you follow that? You know what I'm saying. And so it's important. If you're not absolutely sure, just wait. Let me tell you something. If God's in it, if God's in it, God will give you the time that you can wait until you're sure what God wants you to do. And if God's not in it, you don't want any part of it anyway. So let it go. Now, what I want you to do with this is not just make a list and post it, but I really want this to become a part of the operational fabric of your life. And as I said earlier, God has blessed and enabled me to make some better decisions in my life. And it's not because I got smarter, but it's because I began following these six principles and sitting down and going, okay, I'm not making any decision until I run it through these six. And you know what? It's amazing. It's amazing how these principles will help you and me to make decisions that are wise and not knee-jerk. Let me review them for you. Number one, remember there's always two sides to the pancake. Don't, don't ever do anything till you hear both sides of the story. Number two, consider the consequences before you act. Number three, bathe that decision in prayer. Number four, never violate a clear standard of the Word of God. Never works. Don't do it. Number five, Make decisions in a team environment. Get people around you you can trust and get them to tell you the truth. And number six, if in doubt, just wait until you're not in doubt. If in doubt, just don't. May I say to you as I close, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a real and personal way as your Savior, the principle number two is real important, to consider the consequences before we act. 
And I would like to challenge you to sit down in light of what the Bible says and really consider the consequences of not embracing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I remember when I was a very uh, young man in college, and I, I was considering whether or not I wanted to do that, or whether I wanted to, to ask Jesus Christ into my life. I sat down and I said, okay, now what are the consequences if I do, and what are the consequences if I don't, based on what the Bible says? And once I made that list, I'm telling you, it was a no-brainer. A no-brainer. Because the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ are just too nasty. So if you're here and you've never done that, rather than just going on and continuing to put it off, sit down, get a piece of paper, make a list. If you need help, you call us. We'll help you to, to give you some information to make a list. Make a list, and I'm telling you, it's a no-brainer. I hope you'll think about that. Well, I hope this will help you. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, thanks so much for being here with us today. And thanks for talking to us about real down-to-earth problems and situations in our life. You know, Lord, we're faced with hundreds of decisions every day. Um, what to eat for lunch, uh, which way to take home from work, uh, what to watch on television at night. And most of these decisions are fairly innocuous and, and, and they, don't, they don't make a lot of difference. But there are those decisions in our life that are huge, that when we make them, they affect the lives of not only us and our families, but of lots of people around us. And Lord, for those decisions, my prayer is that you would build these principles into our life and that they would become part of our standard operating procedure. And Lord, my experience has been when I follow these, I just make better decisions. And that's good. And I, I know it'll work for everybody sitting here. So Lord, may we not dismiss these as just a list we got at church, but may we embrace them into the operational portion of our life. And may you change our life and help us make better decisions because we learned them today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.